The nuclear age was birthed in the secrecy of the Manhattan Project, which created the first atomic bomb and started us down this slippery slope. Some people think that, outside of the bomb, nuclear information is on the up and up these days, and nuclear power decisions are made with transparency because, hey, what have they got to hide? But then you hear an experienced journalist say, I think the sort of constant undertow of secrecy surrounding the entire nuclear industry, not just the military side, not just the bombs, which you would kind of understand, but the way in which the atoms for peace people, the people who are using nuclear power to generate electricity, still adopted an obsessive secrecy and a complete refusal to be open about what's going on. And that continues to this day. Yeah, the nukesters do love their secrecy. And when you think about what they might be so intent on hiding, that's when you start to realize that, like it or not, you are sitting in that seat that we all share. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I'm the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, we talk with London-based environmental journalist Fred Pierce, author of the new book, Fallout, Disasters, Lies, and the Legacy of the Nuclear Age. We will also have nuclear news from around the world, numbnuts of the week for outstanding nuclear boneheadedness, activist shoutouts, and more honest nuclear information than anyone could bear to think about during last week's international heat storm of 110 plus degrees. But of course, there's no such thing as global warming, right? <laughs> All of this will be coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, July 10, 2018, and here's the week's nuclear news from a different perspective. First, Let's catch up with the ongoing saga of negotiations between the U.S. and North Korea to do away with nuclear on the Korean Peninsula. Immediately after last month's meeting between Donald Trump and North Korean leader Kim Jong-un, Axios.com published a classified report from Israel's foreign ministry, raising doubts over Trump's optimistic statements about his summit and determines that the U.S. retreated from its positions on several issues relating to North Korea's nuclear program. It summed up, Many in Japan, South Korea, and the U.S. Congress doubt that North Korea is sincere in its intentions. Our assessment is that regardless of President Trump's statements about quick changes that are expected in North Korean policy, the road to real and substantive change, if it ever happens, will be long and slow. As for North Korea's so-called historic promise to roll back its nuclear program, 
We would like to point out that North Korea signed the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty in 1985, signed historic agreements to halt its nuclear program in 1992, 94, 2005, 2007, 2011, 12, and 15, didn't happen any of those times. Are you seeing a pattern here? On June 30th, NBC News reported that U.S. intelligence agencies believe that North Korea has increased its production of fuel for nuclear weapons at multiple secret sites in recent months. The intelligence assessment seems to counter the sentiments expressed by Donald Trump, who treated after his June 12 summit with Kim that, quote, there was no longer a nuclear threat from North Korea, end quote. Just two days later, on July 2nd, Trump told Fox News that he trusted Kim Jong-un would dismantle his nuclear program, but admitted the deal they agreed to in Singapore could fall apart. New satellite imagery showed an expansion of a missile manufacturing site capable of producing missiles that could hit U.S. military installations in Asia. On July 7, North Korea said that high-level talks with a U.S. delegation led by Secretary of State Mike Pompeo were, quote, regrettable and accused Washington of trying to unilaterally pressure the country into abandoning its nukes. Going on to say that the United States betrayed the spirit of last month's summit between Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un by making, quote, one-sided and robber-like demands on what's called CVID, or the Complete, Verifiable, and Irreversible Denuclearization of North Korea. And from the New York Times comes an op-ed with a headline that says it all. North Korea is a nuclear power. Get used to it. In Colorado, the Battle of Rocky Flats continues. U.S. government lawyers are trying to bar expert witnesses from testifying at July 7 in the Rocky Flats preliminary injunction hearing. The plaintiffs are pressing for an opportunity to demonstrate harms if a proposed wildlife refuge is open to the public at the Superfund site where plutonium triggers for nuclear weapons were manufactured for several decades. International warnings to not go near the water. In the UK, volunteers at Radiation Free Lakeland, a nuclear safety campaign group based in Cumbria, have been sending soil and sand samples from West Cumbria's coastline to the U.S. for testing. Restrictive funding meant only two isotopes were tested for, but even so, fully one-third of all samples tested contained levels of americium and cesium, which are dangerous to health. The beach radiation was not found by prospecting with a Geiger counter looking for hot spots, but were dirt and sand samples randomly taken between low and high tide marks and then mailed with a GPS location to be analyzed in the U.S., The BBC reports that dangerous levels of radiation were found in a bay near the Bulgarian resort of Chernomarts. In some areas, the radiation is up to 50 times above normal. However, access to the beach is not prohibited, and the risk of using it is considered to be the responsibility of people on holiday. Mexico has placed its capital and 10 states on alert after thieves stole a vehicle with a container full of radioactive materials that a pr- It's the fourth time in 18 months that theft of radioactive materials in Mexico has occurred. In Japan, wishes of safety for those people hit by record rainfall and in the path 
of Typhoon Maria. And now... Nuclear hot seed, nuclear hot seed, nuclear hot seed, none that's out of week. In a bid to rebuild its tourism industry, travel firms in Japan have been offering trips to towns in Fukushima Prefecture, the area most affected by the 2011 9.1 magnitude earthquake and resulting tsunami and, of course, the lingering nuclear disaster at Fukushima Daiichi. But now, 26 warning signs simply stating no entry have been placed along a stretch of National Road 114, which connects Fukushima and Namie. Why, you might ask? Tourists have been getting out of their cars and posing for selfies inside the Fukushima nuclear disaster zone, ignoring radiation warnings so they have to actually be told, don't do it. No word if they get off with a warning, a ticket, or a radiation exposure badge. And that's why you stupid tourists in Fukushima for being there in the first place, let alone getting out of your cars with all that radiation. You are this week's Nuclear Hot Seed, none that's out of week. We'll have this week's featured interview in just a moment. But first, my ongoing thanks to all of you who help support the show. Whether you send us a one-time donation or choose to buy the show a cup of coffee every month in a recurring donation of $5 or more, everything counts towards covering our expenses and your kind words help keep me in good heart. Donations are the lifeblood of Nuclear Hot Seat. We have monthly charges for all the online services, plus quarterly charges for the website itself, social media programs, occasional paid help with the website, and much more. Your donations also, in the long run, help provide the funds for me to be able to travel to cover events important to this community. Just one of those coming up is the International Uranium Film Festival, which will be held in Window Rock, New Mexico, this November. That's where I'll be meeting with activist filmmakers from around the world, as well as catching up with so many individuals involved in fighting the proposed high-level so-called interim nuclear waste dump in New Mexico. More on that as we get closer to the dates. But it's just one example of what it takes to get you the nuclear news as quickly and as accurately as possible. Know that when you donate to Nuclear Hot Seat, you're helping us increase our reach, expand our focus, and do what it takes to keep you up to date on all things nuclear from that different perspective. So please don't wait. Help us now. Just go to NuclearHotSeat.com and click on the big red donate button. That's where you can send a one-time donation of any size or set up an automatic recurring donation of any size. And for those of you who would like to make a big difference on a budget, on the website we've got a big green donate button that allows you to easily set up a recurring donation of just $5 a month. Here in the States, that's about the same as a cup of coffee and a nice tip. It may not seem like a lot, but trust me, it really does go a long way to making the difference in our ability to meet the monthly expenses. So please, do what you can to help Nuclear Hot Seat stay up and running as we search out and share information that the nuclear industry would really rather you not know. Whatever you can do to help, 
you have my deepest gratitude. Here's this week's featured interview. Fred Pierce is an English author and journalist based in London. He's a science writer, reporting on the environment, popular science, and development issues from 64 countries over the past 20 years. His specialty is global environmental issues, including water and climate change. And his latest book is Fallout, Disasters, Lies, and the Nuclear Age. And that's what we talked about. Fred Pierce, so good to have you with us today on Nuclear Hot Seat. Pleasure to be with you. What started you on this journey to examine nuclear waste sites around the world? Well, it's, it's a kind of dark tourism enterprise, I suppose you'd say. But it began, I'm a journalist, so it began with a journalistic commission. I was asked by a magazine here in the UK to explore what had been going on at Sellafield, which is the British version of Hanford, I think you'd say, where the original uh, nuclear reactors to produce the raw material for the British bomb were built in the 1940s and 1950s. And the darkness of what I found, the huge legacy issues of abandoned waste, of contaminated sites, problems that really nobody had a solution to, and certainly nobody had thought about fixing when they'd built the original plants, just kind of felt overwhelming. I'm a journalist who's been going for quite a few years, and I remember when I was working for New Scientist magazine back in the 1980s, writing a lot of stories and editing stories about toxic problems at Sellafield, and it seemed like these were all coming home to roost, all the predictions that were being made about leaving waste for future generations and not solving them were all coming true. So having done that, I began to look at the global legacy issues of nuclear power, and I began to realize that we were looking at a, an industry in decline something which, you know, when I was young, was a new industry. It was, you know, it was the white heat of technology. It was going to bring us energy too cheap to meter. But suddenly it seems like an old industry, and we're just left with the legacy problems, the toxic waste problems, for which, in many cases, we really don't have any solutions. How many sites did you discover around the world, and what determined which ones you went to visit? I went for some of the famous ones. So I went to sites of major accidents that we've all heard about. So I went to Chernobyl in the Ukraine. I went to the area around Fukushima in Japan. Both of those have got large exclusion zones where they evacuated people in the days and hours after the accidents and they remain empty. So those were quite extraordinary places to go to. I went to places where there are established problems of contamination of the ground. I went to Rocky Flats, for instance, where they used to machine plutonium to turn into bombs. Um, I went to a number of other sites. Looking at those kind of things, I tried to get into some of the former bomb testing grounds, though that's a little harder to do. Uh, they tend to be still closed areas. And I found some exclusion zones that nobody really knew about. So one behind the Ural Mountains in Russia, where there'd been a huge accident back in 1957. And an exclusion zone had been created there and people had been evacuated at very short notice and not allowed back. And really nobody in the world knew about that. That was almost not quite a new discovery, but I was the, the first Western journalist to get to go there. Where did you start the investigative journey? It began in Sellafield in the northwest of the UK. 
Britain's premier waste disposal site. It's in its original site for manufacturing plutonium for our weapons and destined in the coming decades to be where all the British nuclear waste lands up and where we're going to store it until we have somewhere final to place it. When you talk about sites such as MIAC, where you were the first Western journalist to be able to access it, Mm. how difficult was it to make the arrangements to go there? Was there openness or did you really have to fight to get in? I had to fight, but there was some degree of openness. I think some of the scientists there were, were quite keen to tell their story. They could explain that back in Soviet times, a lot of things happened that shouldn't have been allowed to happen and that they would then say, well, you know, we're new managers now, we're the same company, but we're new people and we've cleaned up our act. And so they would, they, you know, they'd give me these stories and there was some truth in them. Certainly things are nothing like as bad as they used to be. But there are, you know, there are dark stories there, the stories of how people were exposed to really very intense levels of radioactive pollution coming out of the Maya plant and going down a small local river, which people used for drinking and used, used for uh, where their cattle went grazing on the marshes and so on. And the stories about how people were not told about what was going on until the fall of the Soviet Union in uh, 1991, they were just guinea pigs. The doctors knew what was going on and tracked them very carefully, but the people themselves were never told that they had taken in very large amounts of radioactivity and the doctors were monitoring them to see what, um, what the health consequences might have been. So some pretty shocking stories came out, not unique perhaps to the Soviet Union and to Russia, but played out at, at a pretty, um, uh, you know, I mean, some of the nastiest episodes happened there because some of the Soviet technology was really very bad and their concern back in the 1950s for human health was pretty minimal to say the least. What did you find most shocking about your discoveries along this journey? I think the sort of constant undertow of secrecy surrounding the entire nuclear industry, not just the military side, not just the bombs, which you would kind of understand, but the way in which the atoms for peace people, the people who were using nuclear power to generate electricity, still adopted an obsessive secrecy and a complete refusal to be open about what's going on. And that continues to this day. So that when the Fukushima accident happened in, in Japan, just you know seven years ago in 2011, people were not told, even doctors and people in charge were not told the degree of contamination that there had been for 10 days. And therefore, you know, nobody literally knew whether they were going to live or die. So that degree of insane secrecy. It shocked me to see the extent to which that carried on. And it did lead me to the conclusion that whatever the narrative about the real danger of sort of low levels of, of radioactivity from power stations and so on, whatever that, almost I felt that human societies and the, certainly the technologists were incapable of having a sensible debate between the industrial people and the scientists and the public, and that we probably really ought to kind of give up this game it seemed like something which we, none of us could cope with in a way. How much of this surprised you, meaning you weren't prepared to get this kind of information about the lies that had been told or the simple absence of information when it might have been made available and might have been able to help people save their lives? 
Well, I mean, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't, didn't come this to, to this in a naive way. I mean, you know, I've been a science journalist and environment journalist for a long time, so I knew some of the stories. But I think what surprised me was the inability of people to change, to move on, to recognise in the way that many other spheres of life people have, at least technologists have realised that openness has its own benefits. It makes life a little sort of rough for a while, but it's much better to be open with the public about what's going on. And the extent to which that that hadn't been learned in the nuclear industry, the way that they were kind of stuck almost in the 1950s, almost stuck with a siege mentality about what they were doing. And I wouldn't say that environmentalists have been, have been great in this. Environmentalists have overplayed some of the risks connected with nuclear power. I think they played fast and loose with some of the science about radiation risks. So I don't excuse them. But you had the sense of just two sides locked in a battle and neither of them being terribly honest. You write about the myth that President Eisenhower's 1950s program, Adams for Peace, had nothing to do with Adams for War, that being the myth. And that's still the belief that many people have, that the two areas are completely separate. How did you come to realize the connection between them? Well, I mean, as a science journalist, I kind of always knew that there was a connection. I mean, the, the basic technology is exactly the same for both. You irradiate uranium to manufacture plutonium. Now, if you're making a bomb, the plutonium is the product. And when you're doing that, you create a huge amount of heat. So if you're making a bomb, the plutonium is the product and the heat is the, is the rather irritating byproduct that you have to get rid of. Using the same technology, the, the heat became, in a civil engineering, in a civil power station, the heat became the product and the plutonium became the problem. So you have different outcomes, but, but essentially the technology is exactly the same. It's always been the same. And that means that you cannot, because a civil nuclear power station, what comes out of the back of that, the spent fuel, as they say, contains plutonium, and that plutonium can be turned into the raw material for bombs. And you can't get away from that. I mean, that's just the basic nuclear physics of what you're doing. So while in policy terms, you can say, well, these are completely different, we're doing different things, what you're actually producing, you cannot get away from the fact that civil nuclear power produces a product, which either is a waste product, or can be turned into raw material for weapons. And what we're kind of left with is the worst of all possible worlds. We're left with this large amounts of plutonium-containing material for which we now still have no sensible place of getting rid of. And plutonium, apart from uh, being a raw material for weapons, so is a constant proliferation hazard while you have it around, also, it re decays radioactivity only very slowly. It has a half-life of over 20,000 years. So it remains a hazard for a very, very long time. So it does create huge waste disposal problems and ones which no country in the world has yet solved. In your book, you state, I tried also to make sense out of many personal and collective responses to the unleashing of the power of the atom to the sense of foreboding and the all-too-real threat that it could be used to annihilate us all. In many ways, this new psychological landscape turns out to be the strangest place of all. Talk to us about what you are labeling the psychological landscape and why you found it so strange. Well, we've realized that we have our future literally as a species in our own hands, the power to split the atom is just so great. The risks attached to it are so great. 
the risks, especially if it gets into the wrong hands, are just so huge that we literally, as a species, have it in our hands to destroy ourselves, as well as nature, to destroy ourselves. And I think that has had a profound effect in my lifetime in the way that we see ourselves and we see the planet and we, the way that we see nature and the environment. I think many of the origins of the environment movement has a sort of global issue. We talk more about climate change now than nuclear issues, but I think the origin of this sense of doom perhaps, but suddenly having the future of our planet and our species in our own hands derives very directly from splitting the atom. Certainly you read the testimonies of the scientists who were involved in the Manhattan Project producing uh, the first American bombs, they were very quickly aware of that and it caused them a great deal of angst. Even those that, that had worked on the bomb and actively wanted to create the bomb, great deal of angst about in the end over what they'd done. So I think much of our thinking about us as a species on this planet and our control over the planet we talk a lot about now about the Anthropocene, about how the planet is now under our control. It's the age of humans on the planet derives ultimately from the, if you like, the original sin, if I can put it that way, of splitting the atom. Of all the sites that you visited, what was the most memorable exchange that you had or the most memorable moment that you had? Oddly, actually, it's, it's something slightly different. It was going to the Chernobyl exclusion zone and seeing the extent to which nature was... Because humans are absent there, by and large, from that exclusion zone, it's, it's 20 miles radius, so it's quite a large area, and nature has moved in, maybe rather radioactive, but nature really rather likes it because there are no humans there. So wolf, packs of wolves were there, bears were there, lynx were there. The people in Ukraine told me that this was their best wildlife reserve. It was like a rewilding operation going on in an area that had been hit by the world's worst nuclear accident. And that you know, just kind of made me sort of, kind of rethink certain things, I guess, that nature perhaps will find a way. I'm not sure that humans will always find a way with what we're doing, but perhaps, perhaps nature will. Nature seems to be quite versatile, and maybe humans will, will as well. I met people who'd gone back into the exclusion zone who didn't want to be evacuated and had been living their lives there now for 30 years. One were eating the local fish and eating, um, picking the berries and eating the mushrooms and doing all the things that the radiologists told them they absolutely shouldn't be doing. And yet well, some of them were living to a ripe old age. I'm not saying that there weren't any radiological hazards in that, and I'm not saying that I would want to live there, um, I certainly wouldn't. But it gives you a kind of hope that maybe there is some salvation here. I don't think that changes the view that we now have the future of our species in our hands, but maybe it gives us some options, it maybe gives us some new ways of thinking about things. How familiar are you with the work of Dr. Timothy Mousseau, who's been doing the on-the-ground research into mutations of plants, insects, birds, and now small mammals, both mm -hmm. at Chernobyl and at Fukushima? 
Yes, his work's very interesting. Um, I mean, I, I've met scientists who have some problems with it. Methodologically, um, they say, well, well, you know, yes, he's found some genetic changes, but what was the baseline? Were they there before? So there's, there are, I, I've met scientists on both sides in that argument. So it's an intriguing one, and I don't think we've got to the end of that. For now, I would say it seems clear that much of, not everything, but much of wildlife is doing quite well. But he may well be right that we're storing up problems for the future, that if you have genetic changes, even ones that seem quite small on the face of it, in one generation, they could exacerbate it in future generations. So there may well be a sort of ecological or genetic meltdown to come. So I'm not saying, you know, we're out of the woods yet or that nature's out of the woods or anything of that sort, and it's important research, but it is very much work in progress, and there are scientists who argue quite vehemently that, if you like, he's not found anything of huge significance. I, I mean, I try to be agnostic about these things. It seems to me that everybody takes sides in the nuclear debate to a rather crazy extent, and I, I felt as a journalist it, would be, it was important to stand back a bit, to say strongly when I thought things were clear, but also to say, well, there are some things that we don't know. I think that's the outcomes of some of those, uh, that, that great experiment of throwing a large amount of radioactive material, and it was a large amount, over, to the, over the exclusion zone of Chernobyl. That's a rather nasty experiment still in progress, and we'll, and we'll see what happens. You carried a Geiger counter with you during these excursions, and I was struck by you saying in a previous interview, so you're walking down the street and the radiation levels as you're waving your Geiger counter are pretty low, but sometimes you put it down to a piece of vegetation in a gutter or in the road and the levels start soaring. At the time, yeah. how aware were you of the differences in radiation readings if taken close to the ground versus higher up and that official radiation monitors, such as those installed by the Japanese government near Fukushima to provide real-time readings next to roads, are really at elevation where the numbers tend to be much lower? Uh, yeah, well, you're quite right. They do tend to be lower because they are at um, some elevation. I didn't have a sense that the, the Japanese authorities were sort of deliberately misleading people about, about radiation levels. And they were, if you like, giving average levels for an environment in which you might live. And that seemed fair enough to me. But the problem is that the levels do vary a great deal. And some vegetation does hang on to radioactivity and, and concentrate it, or that was the sense that I had. It wasn't always just at low levels down bits of, you know, bits of grass or, or ferns or something on the, on the ground, where I certainly found high levels. It was behind buildings and that kind of thing. It was not random, but they tended to be sort of little, little sort of hideaway corners and things where perhaps the air didn't move around so much, where the higher levels were found. The other problem there, of course, is that what you experience by sort of wandering around or breathing in can be very different from what you'd experience if you started eating produce grown in soil. So, for instance, some parts of the exclusion zone in Japan, the authorities are now inviting people to come back to. And probably for most circumstances, that's fine. And they could return. The authorities have done a lot of cleanup and so on. And some of the radio, some of the isotopes are decaying away now. But even so, if you then went back and started growing salad vegetables in your back garden, say, you could um, stumble upon really quite high levels of radiation. And of course, you wouldn't know it, because that's perhaps the other side of the other thing with radiation is that we have no way of knowing if there is a threat out there. I and mean, that makes 
it very difficult for any of us to make sensible, realistic decisions about whether we would want to go back to an old home, whatever the authorities said. And of course, nobody has much trust in the authorities in Japan after what happened at Fukushima. But you know, how would you know if the authorities were telling you the truth? If it was, say, there's an urban smog or something, you can kind of smell it a bit and you have a sense of, you know, you, you kind of know when it's when the air is filthy, but you have no way of knowing if the air is radioactive or if, you know, the fruits that you picked off a tree were radioactive. And that is makes us very cautious, and I think quite rightly. We can't really treat radiation like any other environmental hazard. And I think a lot of the, the sort of nuclear um, experts and the radiologists and so on rather forget that. They do their own measuring and they say, oh, it's safe most of the time and therefore it's all right. But if you're just an ordinary citizen, an ordinary journalist or an ordinary teacher or an ordinary anybody else, you may be quite scientifically literate, but you really have no way of knowing day to day whether people are telling you the truth. When you were in Japan at Fukushima, did you do any kind of outreach to the local citizens groups that are attempting to deal with radiation exposure and get people second opinions after government reports have said there's no danger, even though there are health problems showing up? I'm thinking specifically of the Tarachine Iwake Citizens Radiation Monitoring Center, which is one such facility that provides alternative services. Uh, yes, they do. And I'm, I'm in favour of citizens having their own independent ability to check these things. There's not a great deal of data because, of course, people who are fearful don't go back. And quite right, too, they shouldn't. So even the towns where, I mean, I went to towns where the government has now said it's safe to go back and, you know, you, you're welcome to go back. And people are simply not going back or not in very large numbers. A few old people will go back. They say, well, I want to go back and, you know, radiation is not going to make any difference to my life anymore. Um, you know, I've only got 10 years of life left anyway. But young families, um, certainly people with children, are very reluctant to go back, sometimes because they got some compensation after the accident and they've moved somewhere else and their lives have moved on, but just as often because they're fearful of going back. So, yes, I've been in touch with various groups who are very vigilant, and I applaud them for being vigilant. I think that's, that's essential. People are ever going to have any trust about these things again. It has to be things which are verified by citizens groups. I'm a great, very much in favor of citizen science, and this is a good example of it, I believe. Given that we have no way to provide safe long-term storage of nuclear waste, nor is there any way known to neutralize it, did you mm. find anything hopeful in your research regarding our ability to deal with radioactive materials left over from weapons manufacturing and reactors? Absolutely not. It's a global problem. No country has established a facility for handling the highly radioactive, plutonium-containing, heat-producing, real nasty waste, the spent fuel, and related things from reprocessing and other activities that just have to be found a safe home. Nobody's done it. The US has talked about Yucca Mountain. I have some sympathy for the people, I must admit, with the people who say, well, maybe the US should go ahead with Yucca, Yucca Mountain because the US has to go, at some point, we'll have to go ahead with something, we cannot have large numbers of interim stores stuck across the country. I think they're in 35 states now where this waste is being held. However secure the circumstances, that's not just not a viable future. At some point, we have to accept what is quite difficult to accept, I agree, that we have to find somewhere to put these wastes. Otherwise, we're simply visiting them 
on future generations. And look, the costs, as well as the radiological hazards, are really very high for doing that. We have to do something with them. Now, you or I may not have wanted to get in this position in the first place. I certainly wouldn't. But nonetheless, we're where we are. So we've got to find some solution for this. You do say that nuclear is a dying industry. Yeah. What led you to that conclusion? You can see how power stations are shutting down. Apart from the environmental concerns, which are real, there's, well, the economics now doesn't add up. Nuclear power has always been pretty expensive. It's getting more expensive, partly because of the waste problems and the safety issues that have got to be addressed. Whereas the alternatives are becoming cheaper and cheaper. And by alternatives, I'm talking about the energy sources that can be low carbon sources of fuel. The nuclear lobby likes to say that nuclear is a low carbon source of energy and therefore we need it in an era of climate change. Well, we need low carbon energy in, in an era of climate change, but nuclear is not a good option. It's expensive. It doesn't fit well with other low carbon energy sources, the renewable sources like wind and solar, which are much preferable and which are not a good fit with nuclear. You couldn't run the two together because nuclear has to be base load. It just economically and safety term, just in terms of public acceptance, it's just not going anywhere. Um, we can see that in how power plants all over the world are being shut down. It's not just the US. The French, who are the most enthusiastic pro-nuclear nation of all and have 75% of their electricity from nuclear power, now have a target of cutting back to 50% as soon as they can. The Germans, who are enthusiastic for a long time, are going to have shut their last power plant by 2022. The Japanese have not found public support for reopening the plants that they shut down after the Fukushima accident for safety checks. They've just been sitting idle now. The Koreans, the South Koreans, who are very pro-nuclear for a while, are now pulling out. The only countries that are left with nuclear um, enthusiasts for nuclear power really are the authoritarian states. All democracies don't want nuclear power because the public won't accept it. So we're left with Russia and China. And even China hasn't given the green light for any nuclear power plants for a couple of years now. So we're almost left back to Russia. And we know that, you know, uh, Putin and his people can do whatever they like. So I think we can see from an environmental, a public health, public acceptability, and just a plain cost perspective that nuclear is just not a, it, it, certainly in anything like its present form, nuclear power really, I don't believe, has a future. I think it's a sunset industry. I think it's on the way out. The only question is how long before it's gone. What we're, of course, left with is the waste hazard, the huge very, very expensive, essentially a trillion dollar problem of how to make that waste safe, how to clean up the power plants that are going to become redundant. The decommissioning costs are going to be huge. Finding places to put this waste, finding ways of keeping it safe so that we're not inflicting huge risks on future generations. It's a big problem, but it is a legacy problem. Your book is Fallout. Disasters, Lies, and the Legacy of the Nuclear Age. What do you hope the book accomplishes? I don't know. I just wanted to tell the story. It seemed to me that some people had written about nuclear weapons and some people had written about nuclear waste and some people had written about nuclear power, pro and anti. Nobody kind of brought it together and nobody had looked at it in the round as an industry of the past, really. Nobody kind of tried to 
you know, sum up where we'd got to. And certainly nobody had really looked in a systematic way at the hazards of the nuclear waste and the decommissioning problems that are now the dominant problems. I didn't really want to kind of, you know, there are plenty of people who are taking sides on this. I didn't really want to take sides too much. I'm quite hostile in many respects, but there again, you know, I'm quite hostile to some some of the things that environmentalists have said over the years. But I just wanted to kind of sum up and help help us maybe make some sensible decisions about how we close this down this industry. But I do think it's an industry that we're going to be closing down. Fred Pierce, and I want to thank you for being my guest this week on Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you very much. That was English science journalist Fred Pierce, author of Fallout, Disasters, Lies, and the Nuclear Age. Know that, in my opinion, some of what Fred Pierce shared in this interview reflects, I don't want to call it a naivete because that's not the right word, but perhaps it's a reflection of unconsciously taking on biases that have been built into the nuclear discussion that are ready to trip up any reporter trying to do coverage. Or maybe he just misspoke within the moment. Even the most skilled reporter is not immune to being fed a sip or two of the nuclear Kool-Aid without realizing that is what happened. And I will have more to say about that in today's final thought. Activist shout-out! Well, happy birthday, United Nations 2017 Nuclear Weapons Ban Treaty. Woohoo! Can you believe it's been a year since that passed? I think we should make July 7th an international holiday and throw a big fundraising party for anti-nuclear groups every year. And hopefully by 2019, we will be celebrating the ratification of this non-binding but very influential treaty. Again, wishing our friends and listeners in Japan safety during the current torrential rains and now the onslaught of Typhoon Maria. Stay safe out there. David Lockbaum, director of the Nuclear Safety Project for the Union of Concerned Scientists, has issued an action alert. This is because the Nuclear Regulatory Commission is proposing to set aside federal regulations and deprive members of the public their legal rights by using a letter to the Nuclear Energy Institute that would permit nuclear plant owners to experiment with new fuel pellets and fuel rods in the nuclear power reactors without prior NRC review and approval, and without you getting a chance to disagree or agree with the experiment. Suffice it to say that the Union of Concerned Scientists opposes this NRC notion. The public comment period to the NRC will remain open until July 23, 2018, and we need all hands on deck on this one. We will have a link up to where you can comment on the website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 368. By the way, the nuclear industry calls this new fuel design accident-tolerant fuel. That is such a case of nuclear spin-speak that I'm dizzy just saying those words. Nuclear spin-speak gets a full chapter in my book, which explains how they use words to make you think that they're not doing exactly what they're doing. 
Jean Stone of Residents Organized for a Safe Environment here in Southern California, who's been working on the San Onofre issue for so many years, asks the question, is a first alert system at San Onofre nuclear waste dump possible? And the answer is yes, thanks to SafeCast. We will be covering this on an interview we've been trying to get for two weeks, and it will be on next week's show. But in the meantime, there is a request for you to sign a petition saying that, yes, we want independent real-time radiation monitoring at San Onofre Nuclear Dump. The link is up on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 386. And an update on my book, Yes, I Glow in the Dark, One Mile from Three Mile Island to Fukushima and Nuclear Hot Seat. The nice thing about hiring people to do digital formatting work is that they deliver what they promise, so you don't have to make yourself nuts, meaning I didn't have to make myself nuts. I'm waiting for some final tweaks to come through. The cover is already adjusted for my formatted book of over 200 pages, and uploading is imminent. One little piece of not such good news, and that is that the pre-order system that I put in place so that you could get in the queue and have your book shipped to you on the first day there's something that's gone a little bit wrong with it that I am still investigating, but it may have negated all the pre-sales. Bummer. Don't do anything yet. I will be back with an update on this next week when it's all been sorted out. And at that point, hopefully, I will also be able to announce the official launch date of the book. Until then, I've got butterflies, goosebumps, and a whole lot of other animal feelings going on. Here's today's final thought. And it's a bit of a long one. I conducted today's interview with Fred Pierce, not having had the benefit of reading his book. My research consisted of reading some articles that he had written and a few previous interviews with him. So I don't know if perhaps he misspoke or misemphasized what he meant in parts of our interview. But in reviewing the material during the editing of this show, I realized that several of his points missed the point, at least from this program's perspective. I don't usually comment on my interviewee's information because I think there are a few examples here of a good reporter being steered into nuclear industry perspective in a way he did not fully understand, even though I'm certain he thinks he did. Specifically, Fred Pierce seems to think that while there's no long-term solution to nuclear waste, here in America, we might as well go ahead with Yucca Mountain. I don't know, his book contains the information that Yucca Mountain is in a far worse earthquake zone than when the land was originally surveyed. That it sits on porous rock over an aquifer that underlies eight states and provides clean, fresh water for millions of people and agricultural irrigation for America's breadbasket states. That the land isn't even legally the United States government's to use as it was appropriated from the Western Shoshone people, which was theirs under currently enforceable treaty rights, and that Yucca Mountain is already inadequate to the task at hand, as there is more stored high-level nuclear reactor waste in the country than can fit into Yucca Mountain, and more is created every day by the operating reactors. So just because a solution is needed doesn't mean that this Yucca Mountain is the solution that is needed. Nevada doesn't want it. The Shoshone people consider it a desecration of sacred lands. The transport of this high-level radioactive waste by highways and rail puts vast regions of our country at risk should there be an accident and a radioactive waste spill. 
I do not know if he considered any of that when he was suggesting the use of Yucca Mountain. When I asked him about why he decided to write his book, Pierce said it was a big story and, quote, no one's put it together. Really? How about the ongoing work of Carl Grossman, Dr. Helen Caldicott, the book's Atomic Accidents by James McCaffrey, Nuclear Disasters and the Built Environment by Philip Stedman and Simon Hodgkinson, Dr. Caldicott sleeping to Armageddon, though admittedly that's more about nuclear weapons, but she covers reactors in her other books. The information is out there and known, but because it's been generated specifically by some of us who are against nuclear, perhaps he discounted it. Or maybe it's just that he's gearing his writing to a general reading audience, which hadn't had contact with the activist books, and that's probably how he got the contract for his book. Pierce got Fukushima wrong. He said he didn't have the feeling the Japanese government was misleading people about radiation levels and spoke of the cleanup as though it was actually cleaned up. Now, it's one thing to walk through an area with a Geiger counter, declare the numbers, "Mm, not so bad, and then, after a short time, get out of Dodge back to London. It is another to be forced to live with the danger provided by an endless bombardment of even so-called low levels of radiation, 24-7, 365, on the bodies of those who would be forced to move back and live there. This includes the most susceptible to radiation damage to their DNA, infants, children, and women of childbearing age. Just because the Japanese government is trying to normalize the perception of Fukushima as safe in advance of the 2020 Tokyo Olympics. It is not safe for the people of Japan to move back into the former Fukushima evacuation zone. Pierce kind of played into the government's hands, perhaps without speaking to some of the more savvy activists dealing with the issues, who may have been the very environmentalists he claims he disagrees with. Of course, You will always find pro-nuclear people to contradict top researchers who come to a more contentious conclusion than they are comfortable with. Researchers such as Dr. Timothy Mousseau, who does his research on the ground at Fukushima and Chernobyl. To cast dispersions on researchers such as Dr. Mousseau, poo-poo their conclusions, and make our experts to be less expert than their so-called experts. So information that comes out against nuclear seems tainted and the sources less than reliable. Pierce said, and I'm approximating his language here because I didn't transcribe it, but he said that Tim Musso's methodology was suspect because, although he found ample samples of mutations, his findings couldn't be trusted because there was no baseline study of mutations in Chernobyl from before the accident in 1986 to compare it with. So... We don't know how many mutations existed before that accident, and thus his conclusions can't be proven. Well, I think it's no surprise that no one in communist Soviet Union saw the need for such a study before Chernobyl's accident. The nuclear industry hates baseline with which to compare things, which is one of the reasons why there are very few studies that took place in Japan immediately after Fukushima, so we have nothing reliable with which to compare more recent and ongoing findings. It's also like we don't know what background radiation levels were before the first nuclear bomb was set off at Trinity because background radiation wasn't even a concept back then. 
So a lack of a baseline study for comparison does not negate Dr. Mousseau's findings or his evidence that there are mutations in every species of plant, insect, bird, and mammal that he has studied. And just because a lot of animals run around the Chernobyl exclusion zone, that doesn't mean it's a healthy wildlife preserve. We don't know about the animals that died because their mutations were severe enough to prevent their survival. We don't know how these mutations will manifest through the generations. Just last week, Nuclear Hot Seat covered the story of Ukrainian researchers being very concerned that a young wolf had ranged out of the Chernobyl exclusion zone because it might mate with a more distant gene pool of wolves, thus contaminating them and their offspring. Now, why would researchers be so concerned about the possible passing on of mutations if there's nothing to be concerned about? As for those residents of Chernobyl who stayed, ate the food, drank the water, and seemed to be fine, the majority of these were originally babushkas, grandmothers who already lived the majority of their lives before the accident and believed it better to stay in their homes than go through the stress of having to relocate. They were not of childbearing age, and they were born out of a cleaner gene pool long before nuclear was an issue, so the sperm and egg that made them was untainted by radiation. So they were genetically stronger, and of course they have a better chance of surviving Chernobyl, but should not be used as an example or an excuse for people moving back into the exclusion zone. And if any of those living now are of childbearing age, genetic damage to their DNA may be recessive and thus invisible for now, only to show up one, two, or three generations down the line when two people with the same recessive gene mate and something unfortunate yet inevitable results. I suspect that much of fallout contains good information on nuclear accidents around the world that are well-researched and reveal details about, say, Mayak in Russia or other nuclear disasters that perhaps we're not so aware of. Fred Pierce is, after all, an experienced, well-respected science journalist with a solid track record, so much of his research will undoubtedly hold up to any scrutiny. He's got a major publisher and plenty of publicity to promote him, so people will hear about this book. That's why hearing those places where he was, in my humble opinion, not as discerning in his research or evaluation as he thinks he was, is troubling to me. I'm sorry I didn't catch all of this during the interview and bring it up for discussion then. And I didn't have a chance to read his book, so I don't know if there's an unconscious bias there. If Fred Pierce or his publicist want a make-good revisit to our discussion in the wake of this final thought, I would be happy to provide it. Email me. I'll set it up. And I welcome the opportunity to help journalists learn where that nuclear slippery slope is lurking just waiting for them to slip up in a pro-nuclear way. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, July 10, 2018. Material for this week's show has been researched and compiled from nuclear-news.net, deunrenard.wordpress.com, miningawareness.wordpress.com, dianuke.org, axios.com, nbcnews.com, cbsnews.com, msn.com, pbs.org, newyorktimes.com, ksdk.com, the Coalition of Activist Groups Fighting Rocky Flats Through the Law Offices of Randall M. Weiner, reformer.com, 
NevadaAppeal.com, ScienceMag.org, AllThingsNuclear.org, TheAtlantic.com, MarianneWildArt.wordpress.com, Novinite.com, RT.com, JournalDuCamaroon.com, HindustanTimes, BBC.co.uk, Newsweek.com, the sole dead cubicle drones who ate the baby and grind out press releases for World Nuclear News, the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission, and a big positive shout-out to the Nuclear Hot Seat listeners and followers around the world. Yes, you, listening right now. 123 countries on six continents and counting. Along with a big welcome to everyone who's listening on our growing network of broadcast stations around the U.S., You realize the show is available for community broadcast stations. Contact me. We'll set up the RSS feed. All of you who are listening show your love for life on this planet by being willing to know the truth and then acting on it. I am so glad I'm with you on this journey together as kick-ass defenders of nuclear truth and supporters of atomic awareness. Thanks for visiting the Facebook Nuclear Hot Seat page. Not the podcast page. Facebook took that one away from me. Just go to the blog page, the one marked with our logo. And if you haven't stepped by yet, come on down and check it out. Click like, follow, post, and share. You can find all of our back episodes, all 367 of them. Sometimes I can't even believe that number. 367 at NuclearHotSeat.com, where you can search by date, episode number, or just put slash blog into the URL and you'll be able to scan 10 episodes at a time. Theme music written by me, sung by Marilee Weber, accompaniment by John Barnard, recorded at Winslow Court Studio in Hollywood. If you would like to get Nuclear Hot Seat delivered via email every week, it's easy. Just go to NuclearHotSeat.com, scroll down for the yellow box. This is especially necessary if you're on a tablet or a smartphone. And sign up for a weekly email link to the latest show. If you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. And if you appreciate weekly verifiable news updates about nuclear issues around the world, take a moment to send a donation of any size to nuclearhotseat.com. Red button, green button. Either way, we will really appreciate your support. Nuclear Hot Seat is copyright 2018, Libby Halevi and Hardestry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed, as long as proper attribution is provided. This is Libby Halevi of Heartistry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that when it's nuclear, the issue is safety. That's our byline. Pass it on. Okay, you just had your nuclear wake-up call, so do not go back to sleep, because we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat, it's the bomb.